Well, if I were to ask for a show of hands, how many of us would want to be found pleasing to God? Given the opportunity. And when it comes down to it, how many of us would want to be bold for Christ? How many of us would want to be average? I just want to make sure I put all the options out there. How many of us would want to be completely unfaithful? None of us. I just didn't want to exclude any of those that didn't raise their hands. But how many of us are already satisfied with how we're doing, with our boldness, with our pleasing to our being pleasing to God? I would say that none of us are ever at the point where we say, I, I'm sufficient in these things. And so our passage today is looking at how do we grow in being bold? If that's set out before us and we find that to be a good thing, what does it actually look like? The passage that we have here this morning has a description. It's Paul telling about what happened in the city of Thessalonica. Thessalonica. <laughs> with the Thessalonian church, and then he gives an interpretation of the matter. He wants to communicate to them what was going on behind his eyes. And we can learn a lot from this passage. And in a church keen to overcome every obstruction that would hinder our relationship with God, I think there will be a key phrase in here that would pique your interest, one that is not unfamiliar to us. So as a fast forward in this, in verse 3 we find... Paul giving this list. He says, our evangelism, our message to you was not from error, not from impurity, not an attempt to deceive, and not to please man. And he contrasts contrasts all of that with, but to please God who tests our hearts. And for, I would say for all of us, if we were to engage in Christian conversation, if we were to engage in ministry to other people, and we look at that list there, I would trust that every one of us, to the best of our knowledge, just like Paul, we're free from error. So we're not, we would rather be silent than just make stuff up. To the best of our conscience, just like Paul, we're free from impure motives. We don't evangelize to gain money. I Trust that of all of us. But to the best of our awareness, we likewise, we're not trying to trick people. Have you gone into a time of sharing Christ hoping to trick them? No. But with all of us in our awareness, there is a sense of fear, a sense of the risk of not pleasing this person. What if it goes horribly wrong? And that fear is not something that just disappears. The error, we can sharpen ourselves and be found accurate in what we present. Our motives can be pure and genuine. But fear is that one that is always lingering in the background. The fear of man and this subset here, the desire to please people, to be accepted by people, to put on a face, is that not central to who we are in our fallen state. But those who, whenever we do not fear God, what do we fear instead? Man and everything else. So those are your two options. Fear God or fear everything else. 
And what we're going to look at is that in contrast. So it's not something that we're ever free of. So how do we overcome it? How are we to be, as Paul will say here, pleasing to God rather than pleasing to men as our motive? How do we put this desire to death? Because what is the most common command in Scripture? Like number-wise. What's to fear not? Fear not. Take courage. uh, Be strong. All of the different applications of fear not. To, To love, yes, because we'll see that perfect love addresses that. But it's not as though we would just be free of fear. Have you ever seen those people that they, the way that they handle themselves, you're like, I could never do that. Do I get any nods? Okay. I say, maybe I'm alone in this, but I see other people with great opportunities and they are found faithful in those great opportunities. And you're thinking, wow. What does that reflect upon me? Because whenever we read of what, Paul was presented with, that is one of those moments where you say, wow, how would I respond in that, in that situation? Because I, I think one of the most fearful statements Jesus ever made, I think many of us would rightly say, uh, Matthew 7, uh, 21, Lord, Lord, did we not? And he says, and I will say, I never knew you. But the one that I would add is this. And he says it a few different times, twice here recorded in Luke and in Matthew and Mark as well. Jesus said, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of his fathers and the holy angels. And in Luke 12, 9, but whoever denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. Do we all stand guilty? Yeah, it's, it's one of those that it, in varying degrees, at, at varying times, are we not all guilty of denying our master, of being ashamed? And beyond, I never knew you, to say that that is a test of my love, my faithfulness to God, that he would say, I would be ashamed of you, that... that we would be denied before the angels of God. That seems to carry a great weight to me, and I hope it does to you. But we begin to ask ourselves, okay, so just how much denial and shame qualify as denying and being ashamed of? What does that look like? Or is this kind of a one-time deal? You have those on your conscience, a time that you actually did that, and it weighs on you. Is that a one-time deal? Or do I get a final test? Maybe this is like a winner-takes-all tournament, and I can get them wrong all the time, but then there's going to be a championship where I can get it right. Maybe God grades on a curve, and I'm just compared to everyone else. Like our mind starts going through this. Am I already beyond redemption? Am I guilty beyond beyond, uh, redemption? Or... Do I, that time in ninth grade, do I need to make up for that? Some people swerve that far. Now I need to go tell everybody to make up for. What exactly are we dealing with here? And then we read in scripture that God has consigned all to disobedience. 
We're all guilty. We all stand guilty of this. Romans 11.32, God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. And this weight of, okay. And Paul continues, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. In that weight of, okay, so there's more to this story. It's not a one-time test. But those questions still linger. Is my life one that is characterized by being ashamed of hiding, of being too fearful before men to actually acknowledge Christ? And there's subtle ways we get out of it too. It's not presented to us as though five, five people walk up to us and say, are you ashamed of Christ? And we get this one-time answer where we say no, and then they keep traveling on. No, we get subtle ways to deny and be ashamed of Christ. Whenever the conversation is going in a certain direction where you're saying, this person needs Christ, we just don't say anything. We, we turn the conversation or we just let it you know, peter out so that uh, nothing really pursues. And I didn't deny him. I just didn't say anything. Or maybe we hope that through that conversation about the weather and about the sports teams, that in some way they're going to pick up that I was a Christian and that'll be convicting to them. And through this map, they're going to eventually figure out. No, we play all these mind games with ourselves so that we're not guilty of denying our master. But God recorded this passage here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 for us here today for the purpose of the sanctification of our lives. So as this title says, how are we to be bold in those big situations? And let me say at the forefront, everybody's big situation is different. For some, it may be a large preaching opportunity. For some, it may be a significant person with which they need to deal with. Some, it is the level of resistance that they've received that to minister to this person who's been hostile. I mean, think of Ananias going in to meet with Paul. He says, God, this guy has been across the land killing us. Was that a big situation? Well, how did Ananias get there? How, how do we actually do this? So let me get you back up to speed, and then we'll read what Paul writes. So if you remember, Paul was only in Thessalonica for, he preached there for three Sabbaths, according to chapter 1, and a mob was raised against him. They said, this man is throwing this city into an uproar. We need him out of here. So as he leaves under uh, difficult circumstances, left in the nighttime, he then sends Timothy back to hear how the church was doing. And he gets a positive report back from Timothy. And now he has the opportunity to write this letter to encourage them and to supply some clarity on certain points. And the overall theme of this message is that he's encouraged by this church and how they've responded. And as we saw last time, I don't 
don't remember how long ago that was, but last time, that the repentance of the Thessalonians was remarkable. They threw out their idols and they turned to be faithful worshipers of God in the midst of difficulties. This was reputation changing. And so now Paul has Paul clarifying for the Thessalonians his motives while he was there present with them. This what he presents here in chapter two may be an opportunity for him to fend off the attacks that people would question him. But there's also, and most likely from what I found in many of the commentaries is that Paul wants to bolster their confidence in what they received. They had a man preach to them on three Sabbaths and let's say he lived amongst them for, let's just double that and say six weeks. And then the people chased him out of town and now are persecuting the church in Paul's absence. Would that make you question why they're persecuting you? Would that make you think like, are we sure that Paul was right and accurate? I mean, if we're going to live this new way, don't we want to make sure that it was genuine or is this all for naught? I would want to be encouraged to know that it was authentic And so this is what Paul writes to them in chapter two, starting in verse one. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. And at this, let's pray. Lord, for us to understand this situation, this is a a great weight that you have recorded in your eternal record for your saints for all time to be encouraged by, to be sanctified by, to be instructed by. And Lord, we thank you for Paul's faithfulness in this. Lord, may we desire, may we desire to live likewise. But this is not a matter of uh, growth of the church for the sake of growing the church. But the people that you put in our lives, Lord, in so many cases, are those who are perishing. You put names and faces and lives in contact with us. Not that we would simply be kind to them, but that we might reconcile the enemies of God, the debtors of God, through the infinite riches of God to that master. Lord, may we be faithful in this. And in so many ways, Lord, that, that Paul can instruct us, this is not just to please men. We hardly find it pleasing to men nowadays that they would hear the gospel. But this is to please you. You're our audience. We have an audience of one. And whenever we go out, Lord, may we not try to, to read the faces and change our message that we might be received by people. 
But may we be faithful to you that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit would communicate these things to people that are hurting, that are lost. Lord, that they might come to reconcile with you. What a a great celebration is in heaven when even one is reconciled to you. Lord, may we be found faithful to be those who desire that. The people we say we love, our family members, our friends, co-workers, those we meet in public. Lord, may we truly love them enough to speak of their greatest need. In Christ's name I ask this. Amen. There's not too much difficulty in understanding this text here where we stop through verse 4. And a lot of this we address as we continue to unfold it. But if I took the whole paragraph, there would be too much for one day. So we're going to address this in a little different way that will hopefully set us up for next week. But it can go a little fast in the exegesis. And then I want us to think. I want us to experience this scene that Paul went through. So if we start by setting the stage here in verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming was not in vain. It was not of essentially no effect. Previously in chapter 1, verse 5, Paul had said, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Paul knew that from where they were to where they are now to endure the difficulties, he's saying only the Holy Spirit would have done this. I'm convinced of it. Paul knows his limitations. You probably know your own in your ability to change other people. I don't know that any of us have transcended beyond that we have our our Holy Spirit junior powers. If you ask a spouse, can you change your spouse? I think I've asked enough in that. No, we don't have the ability, and Paul knows that he's just a man with a message. But he knows that whenever he showed up, the Holy Spirit was active This was not in vain. And then he recalls for them in verse 2, we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know. And for this, I want us to go back and I want you to see the scene. So we're going back to Acts chapter 16 and 17 so that we can watch this. But I would have you to imagine the scene because I want you to put yourself into it. Because whenever we're going to deal with fear and the emotional weight of fear, it's not simply that I want to appeal to your intellect. You would all understand what I'm preaching to you. And it's not as though you don't understand that we should not fear God more than people. That's not new to anybody here this morning. But whenever you are then in that situation... It's not the faulty reasoning that shows up. It is this great weight of emotion of fear that grips us. Whenever somebody that you begin to present the gospel to, then they give you pushback. What happens? If you're not prepared for it and you're just desiring to please people, you, and all of a sudden you will have physiological responses. Your blood pressure will go up. Your muscles will tense. Your vision focus, you are literally gripped with fear. I want you to see this scene, and then we're going to enter into it. What would the weight of that feel like? 
So in Acts chapter 16, verse 22, after Paul had already caused a, a ruckus there by confronting those who were using a slave girl as their moneymaker, they were then confronted publicly in Acts 16, 22, says the crowd joined in attacking them. So you're watching that. And the magistrates, so those in, in authority, tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. Now you're, you're watching this in your mind. Mobbed and attacked. So this communicates a level of vulnerability. They don't do this to royalties. They do this to the people who they know are not going to go raise up an army and come back and fight them. They do this to the lowly, to the poor, to the weaklings. So simply by attacking them, they're already at the point of saying, you're weak and helpless. Tore the garments off them. Is that not everyone's greatest fear? I mean, is that not a level of vulnerability that you are in front of the city square and they, do I need to explain? They tore the garments off them. A complete shaming that how could you go any lower? Held them down, publicly beaten. They throw them in jail and lock them in the stocks. Now, I don't know how your weekend went. But if we were talking on Monday morning and I said, how was your weekend? Would you be proud to tell me that that's how your weekend went? They were beaten, jailed, and only later, quietly, they said, oh, you're Roman citizens? We'll just leave and just don't say anything. So there was no public confession. Hey, we were, they just dismissed them shamefully treated. Now, I want you to just take a moment from your own life that you would say, what does that emotion feel like? You would have to draw from your own experiences. What does it feel like to be shamed publicly? If you've been in that situation, that scenario, in the weight of that, many people describe it as, starts with a T, traumatic yeah and there's even a whole subset of post-traumatic stress disorder so the the weight of that time of some traumatic events some shameful sometimes they're more uh, vicious and gory but a, a time something that's so great of shaming of embarrassment happened to you I want you to hold on to that emotion. We're not just reading this as words on a page as though this happened to somebody else. But in order for the scripture to be real, we are reading what happened to Paul and saying, that weight, that is the shamefully treated, as you know. How did you want to respond? How would you respond to being publicly shamed or shamefully treated? Well, whenever we go to Acts 17, we see Paul's response. So we're going to be here for just a second. It says in verse 1 of chapter 17, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, 
where there was a synagogue of the Jews, and Paul went in, as was his custom. Well, that, wasn't, that, uh, that wasn't the top of my list of things to do whenever I was shamefully treated. And on three Sabbath, day, Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom you proclaim, who I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And now listen to the groups of people that are recorded here. So consider, he's not doing this quietly. So after having been shamefully treated, he shows up here a matter of weeks later. And verse 4, and some of them were persuaded. Okay, so this is a general group of those who attended the synagogue. This likely includes uh, Jason, as commentaries have it. We find him in verse 7. But this is a general group of people. So some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks. Devout here connotates somebody who is a God-fearing person. These are those who have changed or they've gone from paganism to Judaism and now to Christianity. And listen to this third group. And not a few of the leading women. And some codices have it to, to put it in English. A few of the women of the leading, or they have it also justifiably, a few of the wives of the leading. Okay, so now, whenever Paul preaches this, who are the people who responded? The common men, some of the leadership, or some of the devout people, and then the leadership, their wives. I mean, he literally has, for everybody from the common to the devout, to those who found themselves very important. A mere weeks after being shamefully and brutally treated in Philippi, his response is to preach far and wide and let it be of effect. He is now right there before the same enemies that beat him up in the last city. He literally walked right back in there. How do we get there from where you are today? Because I, I've talked to many people. Whenever we, I, I haven't talked to anybody who's received what Paul has received, but for those who've been shamefully treated, don't you want time to lick your wounds? Don't you want time to find somebody to minister to you? To understand, was I wrong? What happened? How did this, how did this occur? You want to make sure that it doesn't happen again? You want to buffer yourself against it? But Paul says to the Thessalonians, I had boldness to declare to you. I went right back in and made more enemies. If we keep and have the motive of pleasing people, being more important than pleasing God, then when you hear that, it appears impossible how how there's no way i could get from where i am to where paul was because we're holding on to the same motive and saying my fear of man my desire to please people will not allow me to go there so is it but is it impossible no it's not but what has to happen 
we need to trust and if I said trust and obey, we may break out in song. We're some good Baptists. But we have to trust and repent of our fear of man. We, we see that and say, there's no way I could get there. And so then we begin to rationalize. Where it's like, well, God hasn't really called me to that. I mean, this was the apostle. You know, God doesn't call me to big things. He just, I can serve quietly, not really mention anything. I don't really have to bring anything up because I could never get there. And we allow ourselves to believe the lies that many of the commands of Scripture to evangelize, to make disciples, to go out and preach the word, they, they apply to other people. But me? No. I mean, I'm, I'm a nobody. I'm not an apostle. What do you mean I'm supposed to say something to this person who's in need of Christ? Dying, going likely to suffer his wrath. I'm a nobody. I mean, all of my friends should meet the apostles, right? Those are the guys who minister. We hear boldness and we think, ah, that's for somebody else. It's great for Paul, but not for me. Do you think Paul was fearless? No, he was a man just like you are. Or I guess he wasn't a woman like you are. He was a person just like us. But whenever he's confronted and it's at that fork in the road, do I please people or please men? You see somebody who the weight of pleasing God was so much heavier on him than the weight of that emotion to fear them that he said it is far greater to please God and to receive that blessing, that motivates me far. The love of Christ compels, controls me. It sends me that way. Because the other weight, the one that I asked you, remember that weight of shame. That one pales in comparison to the one that would send me in love. That's how great of a power the love of Christ is. That can grow in all of us. To say it another way, when we read in Scripture, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Is anybody unfamiliar? Go therefore to all nations and make disciples. You've heard a hundred sermons on it. We read about the saints overcoming fear, despising the, the shame, overcoming rejection, persecution. But when we're faced with that same emotion, not situation, we're today not in the same situations that the apostles were, but that emotion where our motive is challenged. The motive of our heart is under trial. Paul was gripped with fear in front of a slave girl. How did he make it to Pentecost? What happened between those two? Preaches to a crowd that was... Those who crucified Christ. How do you get from denying it in front of one girl in in the quietness of a campfire to preaching it both? How did he get there? We, at those moments, determine ourselves, is it, oh, I just have to have courage? Or is there a way with which we grow? What is the process to get there? And that's what the majority of our time in conclusion, is going to be. 
So I want to ask a few questions that, that put it on our conscience, a, a self-evaluation as you're thinking of Paul at this point where he's saying, I was bold before you. Have I been called to the same boldness? Have I been called to the same task? Maybe not to minister to a large group of people, but have I been called to speak the name of Christ and minister him, his love, his words to the people God has put in my path? Absolutely. If I decline to do it, can I trust that God will just send somebody else and I'm off scot-free? Why? Because God is he's sovereign. He's also testing me. Yeah, there's a test here. That if I am faithful in it, then I... And, and I mean, as we'll see, enter into the joy of my master. This trial, this temptation, this opportunity is the means by which as I am faithful, I then go forward and there's blessing that then compounds. He gives me more, a greater opportunity to then as I enter into that and I'm faithful there. And now the path of my life, rather than going in fear when those people ask me questions, I now have a pattern of walking in greater and greater blessedness and freedom in Christ. But some, I would say, no matter, no matter the amount of examples I can give today, are so well entrenched in their fear. I've heard this before, that... Some would describe Christ as harsh, brash, combative, unloving. A similar statement as, I know God is love, but Jesus just seems a little harsh. Isn't there a nicer way to say it? And what is the reasoning there? saying that there's problem with God. So the problem's not in me. It's, it's not my fear. It's that, you know, is this really the way forward? Is this really how I have to do it? And so we find those subtle dodging points. It's not just a bold proclamation that they're afraid of. They won't even say a simple word such as Jesus. You can't even get a peep out of them, let alone a full proclamation of the gospel. And yet in quiet, where there's no risk to them, they might say, I'm a Christian. But then they shrink back. I'm never satisfied with the presentation of the gospel. As you could probably tell, I've always got more to say. I get a few nods to the people who don't laugh at that. You have not been cornered by me yet. You haven't given me the chance to explain something a hundred different ways and then still be rambling on whenever you walk away because I'm not done. I heard one amen, and that was my wife. But there's an irrationality of fear in our minds. What we tend to think is going to happen goes somewhere in this vein. Because the, the fear doesn't shut off. So even the way that we read the scriptures, we read it in light of our fear. We're trying to interpret it. 
on how to protect ourselves and yet still follow God. And so there's an anxiety, a torn. How am I supposed to be like Paul? How am I supposed to be like Jesus and still be self-protected? And so the irrationality, we let the weight of what it would mean to be shamed hold us back from ministering. You hear a statement like the good news includes the knowledge of how bad the situation is. People would need to know that, right? They need to know they're sinners in order for them to search for a savior. And to those who are gripped in fear, what they would hear is something like, once your heart rate is maxed out, berate them with the law until they're silent and they have no response. They need to know they are wicked. And they just, the, in their imagination, they're like, well, how would I ever do that? They hear about Paul in Acts 17 and think, well, in order to evangelize, it's going to be like Paul's experience. The most likely outcome is that I am going to be persecuted. Whenever I hear, of some, I hear of somebody who needs Christ, if I speak up, it's very likely that I will be beaten, stripped of my garments, and locked in a closet. So they're, whenever they're hearing about the persecution that comes, it seizes them up with fear to then do nothing. Is that the normal experience of ministering Christ? You heard of two women this morning tied to the stake, right? Was that their first mention of Christ? Or were these women faithful, found faithful, going about doing good, and they had been suffering the persecution, but that was nothing compared to the joy of being pleasing to Christ. And it came at some point, but if we're... If we're going to side with that fear and let that emotion rule us, we would think that being persecuted is the first response we get in ministering. And I want to show you that it's not that way. We actually believe that so that we can maintain our fear. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Oh, wait, didn't you just say? Didn't you just say that it's not every time? Right. You have to be ready and willing to go forward. But the persecution will come. The only way out of that, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life, the only way out is to not desire to live a godly life. If you don't mention it at all, and God never draws you out to be a minister, so if you are not a believer, you won't be persecuted for Christ. But if you are one of God's, one of those that he has reconciled with himself, that you might go out reconciling others to him, you will be persecuted. But I'm going to bank on the chances 
that you will see that the cost of rejection, what you lose in those personal relationships is nothing compared to the weight of the glory that you would receive. That person that you're afraid of, you see them every single text message. This person just needs Christ. Who has God sent to tell them about Christ? A show of hands. Anyone? He has sent you. And if you refuse, how will they ever hear? When you do, I promise you, your heart will leap with so much more joy, regardless of their response, that you have been tested and found faithful. I don't know if it's your mom, if it's your friend, if it's your boss, if it might be the drug cartel. I don't know who it is. I don't know who you hang out with, all right? Some people I question. I don't know who it is, but the weight of pleasing God, he brought you into that circumstance and now here is the choice. You fear man and try to please him or you fear God and try to please him. I'm just going to bank on the fact that when you are faithful, it'll be worth it. How do we go forward step by step? Okay, so if I am willing to confess that this is not a matter of circumstance, but this is a matter of my heart. Okay, if I can get you there, the ball is already rolling. If you are willing to confess, Lord, this is a matter of my desire just to please people, and I've neglected pleasing you, the ball is already rolling. Okay, so how do we go forward? Is it that we command obedience? You know, Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Do we? Yes, we do. Do we need repentance? Yes, we do. Matthew ten, twenty-eight. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So we repent. Do not fear. Fear instead. Do I need to warn you of consequences? Is that how we go forward? Yes. Whoever denies me before men, Matthew 10, 33, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. That's another step. Is it an expression of your worship? Yes. Second Corinthians five eleven. knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. It's an expression of your worship. Is it an expression of your love? Yes. As Paul continues, the love of Christ controls us. In chapter 5, verse 18, God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. But also, yes, there's a change in your motivation. Do you want to be pleasing to God? The situation is brought to you. You either choose, do I fear God or do I fear man? It's not as though you dodge the situation. So how do we go forward in that? I want you to turn to Luke chapter 16. There's this overarching principle in Scripture that when applied here, I think can help give you the visualization that not 
every time is there going to be a Paul chased out of Philippi moment. It actually is much more attainable than that. We're looking at Luke chapter 16 and starting in verse 1 in a parable that I know is very difficult because it had me questioning whether or not I know the Lord whenever he said the parables are for the believers. And I'm like, I don't understand this one. I had to go and read it myself and search the commentaries that I might understand. So Luke chapter 16. And I want you to to understand this. There are going to be a few pauses as we go. Starting in verse 1, he, Jesus, also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called, to, called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do, since my master is taking away the management from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. Ah, I've decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Verse 5, So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said, Take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. What is going on here? Whenever you read through the end of verse 7, you're thinking, honestly, that was brilliant. I never would have thought of that. I mean, he's, he's right. The, the sons of this world are more shrewd. I never would have thought of that. That this manager successfully saved himself by giving away the master's riches. Now, is this starting to echo? The parables have like one meaning. Okay, and we're still going to get to it. They have one profound truth. So in verse 8, whenever we read the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, that's part of the story, not, not what you're to draw out of it. We really need verses 9 to 12 to gain the full understanding of what Jesus would have as the main point of this parable. So it's not as though this dishonest manager, just like the unjust judge, it's not as though that was the point, is that we're supposed to be shrewd and deceive people. Should not the sons of God use the master's riches to reconcile the debtors to the masters? Alexander McLaren says this, it says, Jesus substantially says that while the steward's using his Lord's wealth in order to help the Lord's debtors, here it is an act of unfaithfulness, but in us, it is not unfaithfulness, but the very means of faithfulness. In the text, we have the thought that there are two kinds of valuable things in the world, the lower and the higher. 
that men who may be rich in one are very poor in another. The noblest use of the lower kind of possessions, so what's here on earth, is to secure the possession of the highest. And so Jesus teaches us the meaning of life and all that we have. End quote. In ministering to people, what's on the line for us that has not been given or that cannot be resupplied by God? But your task as an evangelist is to take this person who is in need and take riches that are not your own, that you might supply them to this person, that they then would be reconciled with the master. And in verse 9 here he says, and when it fails, they might receive you. So this manager, I'm like, everybody makes out here. Whenever the master says to the manager that that was a shrewd move, it's kind of like with the wink and the nod, like, yeah, yeah, good job. Because what he's saying here is you just secured a future for yourself. That we, by ministering the gospel to other people, are thereby saving ourselves. We actually hear this elsewhere in the Gospels and in the parables, just in a little different order. But whenever we have a God who's rich in mercy, rich in love, rich in kindness, is forgiving, gracious, is it for us if, to think that we hold on to those at the exclusion of other people? Is this a one or the other? There's only so many people who get into heaven. And I'm not going to share this so that none of you get in. It increases my chances, right? Some believe that. No, we're not trying in evangelism to win people to ourselves. We're trying to win them to Christ, to the master. You're not trying to be the most pleasing person to the lost. Christ is to be more pleasing that, that is the aim. What's, what's the risk to me personally? But here is the principle found throughout the Gospels. In verse 10, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is dishonest in much. If then you've not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will trust you with true riches? If you've not been faithful to what is another's, who will give you that which is your own? I give you this visual. If you had an investment manager and he squandered all your money, would you be eager to make sure he gets a paycheck? <laughs> You'd be like, yeah. Uh, if you were unfaithful in my wealth, why would I give you that which is your own? We think about it the other way around. Most often, the way that we think of this is that I may not be faithful in the little things, okay? Like, it was one conversation I denied, you know, that wasn't the big one. It was, it was no biggie. But when, I, when it gets to the big things, Oh boy, am I going to shine. I promise you, I promise you, I have been faith, unfaithful my whole life. But when it gets real big, I shrank before the single person, I shrank before the child. But when you put me on stage, oh boy, here it comes, right? 
We want to argue with ourselves and prop ourselves up that we really don't fear man. We fear God more than that. You know, if you put me in first century Thessalonica, I'm going to shine. But here, ah, uh, you know, that's not the way the kingdom of God works, and it is for our benefit. Listen to parallel teachings on this. Matthew 25, the parable of the talents. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he repeats that in 23. You've been faithful over little. I will give you much. Luke 19, 17, the parable of the 10 minus. And he said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. Because you've been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And we see this greater to lesser contrast all over the scripture. We hear it recently. If, if, you have race, if you cannot race with the footmen, how are you going to outrun the chariots? Or even 1 John 4, how can you love, or if you have not loved your brother whom you can see, how can you say that you love God that you cannot? It's, it's this greater and lesser. He who is faithful in very little is faithful in very much. In 1 John 4, 8, I add this into the equation. 4, 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So fear present equals love absent. Fair equation there? If fear is present, love is absent. There is no fear in love. But do we just cast it out? Are we, do we have lives that are practiced in the fear of man? And then we're just going to cast it all out at the last moment? No. If our culture is ever distancing, if I were to, how many would raise their hand for this? If I were to go down to the market right now, pick the grocery store, and I were to whoop up a crowd of 60 people, tell them, hey, we got something to tell you. How many of you would be ready if I then took the loudspeaker and said, tell them, preach, preach the gospel right now? Do I have any takers? I could probably get 60 people. Anyone? What would your response be? You'd say, wait, 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 wait. Let me first practice with one. Give me a smaller crowd. Don't make me, you know, uh, if, if I got a, you know, a death match here, don't put me in with the, the uh, rattlesnake. Give me like a worm first. I need to make sure I can kill these things. You know how many gospel presentations I've ironed out and cast over my shoulder that I tried to work out on a one-year-old. I practice with people who don't understand. I started with the dog, okay, and I moved up to the infant. And so just, just know yours is coming. But if you were to snapshot that, you'd say, no, 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 I'm not ready for, for that big. Let me start with the small one. Okay, then start. If you, need a, if, if you want to be ready, that bold in that big situation of a crowd of two people, you need to start with a crowd of one. And that crowd is not going to get any smaller than one person. If we start there and we are faithful 
in one confrontation. He who is faithful in little is faithful in much. If you shrink back from even the slightest hint of rejection, there is no greater day coming with which you're going to be faithful. I would hope that we would all have somebody in mind. That is your big situation. For us to grow in our pleasingness to God. Let me ask this. In terms of numbers, you know, big situations, what do they actually look like? Who did David defeat in battle? Okay, I've got, I've got one or two for Goliath. Who did David defeat in battle? Okay. Scripture records over 60 battles that he fought with armies, groups of men, leaders, kings, destroyed cities, nations. And you remember the battle that he fought one man. So in order for it, just imagine if, if we had David, a war-torn veteran, a accomplished military commander of 60 battles, shows up on the battlefront to fight Goliath, and we say, this man has fought 60 battles, and now he fights one guy? It would have been like a foregone conclusion. If you read David's military uh, accomplishments and then he fights Goliath, you're like, yeah, Goliath should, should have seen that one coming. But you actually have him starting with the small one, a matter of small opportunity. David started with lions and bears. Oh, my. And then he shows up. Then he shows up to Goliath. One man. And God, for how many generations has, it, has praise been given to God that for one young boy with some stones from the river can defeat the giant of uh, an opposing army? We don't remember David defeating um, the Edomites or the Ammonites or some random king. statement here for us there is no such thing as a great man of God only weak pitiful faithless men of a great and merciful God pastor Paul Washer amen you're not called to go out and defeat dragons you're called to minister to the singular person that the Lord has put in front of you. And this is what they must know to be saved. If I am going to tell somebody something, I want to, as I've had throughout this morning, I want them to know that a righteous and loving God created them to do good. And that each person born into sin has chosen to exercise that evil nature, not fearing God, but doing whatever was right in his own eyes which necessitates that that righteous judge executes justice on all. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And they can either pay that eternal punishment themselves 
or they can claim a substitute who himself does not have to pay his own. Jesus Christ left his seated position on the throne of heaven to become a man, to be obedient to God, even to the point of his own death, thereby securing eternal life as a reward for his life. Christ's death is a sufficient ransom for all who've placed faith in Jesus' life and his work and his death, his resurrection, so that upon that day of judgment, justice aimed at the sinner is applied to Christ's account. Our sin exchanged for his righteousness and all who are forgiven by God, shown mercy from God, who have been chosen by God, receive this free gift of eternal life that they will dwell with God in peace eternally. In order to change the people in our lives, God is going to work through us. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I I thank you that you do this work. I am... I, I see the limitations. I can hardly get anything to work as I will. I hardly can even have people to think what I'd want them to think, do what I want them. Those are not the goals that I should have, but it is to be pleasing to you that this gospel, Lord, first, I thank you that it's applied to me, to those that it's applied here in this room. Lord, that that overflowing that the riches poured out into our account would flow through us, that we would be desiring to be filled with Christ, filled with the Spirit, that that's the only thing that overflows out of us, that we wouldn't be so full of ourselves that ourselves flow out. No, Lord, may you. And I pray that this would be an encouragement, a confrontation. Lord, that it does not get any easier than one person speaking to another person and telling them about Jesus Christ and their need of Him, that we, that we would take on the desire to please You. Lord, we, we know people who need to hear this. In many ways, Lord, we desire for them to join us here in worship on a Sunday morning, yet we're afraid to invite them. We're afraid to tell them the requisite knowledge that would send them desiring to be here. Lord, may we repent of this. There has to be confessions from our hearts this morning that we've shrunk back, that we've denied you. Lord, forgive us. May we go far more boldly than we do Lord, that we would be willing to suffer. We get to that place as we grow in faithfulness and grow in our desires to please you. So do that through your people. Lord, encourage us, strengthen us, and show us that the battle is yours, already won, but we're to be faithful soldiers in it. Lord, I pray that you would apply this to us, minister it to us in the name of Christ. Amen.